0: Hi everyone, everyone. I'm John,
1: and I'm Georgia, and we're here, inside your ears, to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. This
0: This is is Comfort Comfort Films. Films. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 54 of the Comfort Films podcast. Tonight, we are going to be talking about the Coen Brothers 1998 film, The Big Lebowski, a personal favorite, really a great film. Um, It's been a long time since we've talked about the Coens. I mean, we talked about them in our very first episode uh, over a year ago now. We talked about Raising Arizona. I can't believe it. It's been over a year. Yeah,
1: it's surprising that we managed to stave them off. (laughs) All the way to episode 54 from episode one, because we love a lot of their movies a lot.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, we're really big fans of the Coen brothers. And generally speaking, we tried to make it so we would always mix the movies up. I mean, we haven't always done that, for instance. I mean, you could call us a Harrison Ford podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah. And spoiler alert, next week is not going to improve that, <laughs> that perception at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I guess the things that you really like... You can't stay away from It's like a moth to the flame. And with the Coens, they have such a unique way of looking at the world. And they just have everything. They have everything at their disposal. And what I mean is they have a wonderful imagination. They have a wonderful crew. They have a wonderful cast. It's just a real experience.
1: And they're super great writers. Yes. So this is our second week in our mystery series. And this movie as a mystery is kind of unique. Because... The mystery element, I would say, is not necessarily, like, the main point of this movie. Not at all. Everything revolves around it, but the mystery itself kind of fizzles (laughs) in the end, um, which is really funny. But, you know, this is based around the idea of doing, like, a movie that was kind of like one of these Raymond Chandler-type stories, that had private detectives in, like, the 30s, 40s, set in LA, and they're taking, like, that concept and inserting these characters into it who were not at all at home in, like, a 40s, 50s private detective story, which just makes for a lot of humor just built in, Mm -hmm. and, I just think that this is a really well-written, smart, smart movie. Now, I would say when I first saw this, I actually didn't realize at the outset that it was supposed to kind of be like a detective story with a non-detective at the center of it. And I kind of didn't understand this movie at all.
0: Oh, you're not alone. Look, I went into this movie with my mother. I remember seeing it was in Westboro, Mass. We were at this Regal Cinemas. She and I went, and, you know, we were very excited. The Coen brothers, I knew Fargo. And, I mean, Fargo, they're coming off of winning two Oscars. Mm -hmm. They won Best Screenplay, and Frances McDormand won Best Actress. So it's like they have a heavy rep at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Right? And then they roll out with The Big Lebowski. Now, in my family, bowling is a massive thing. (laughs) Yeah. My father bowled, right? His father bowled. It's a big deal. There are newspaper articles. My dad was on Bowling for Dollars. Oh, yeah,
1: you told me that. That's awesome.
0: Right? I mean, it was, it was a crazy show. I wish I could actually find the episode. Yeah, on this show, what you had to do is you had to get a strike, and you would be the big winner. My dad got a spare. Aww. I know. I know. He was pissed, too. Bummer. I could feel it. I felt it. But he got the spare, though. Hey, you
1: know what? Even, you know, getting that far is pretty hot stuff. Well, it is. And his
0: dad actually had a newspaper article in the Latro Bulletin for bowling a perfect game, you know? <laughs> nice. So it's like, you know, this is just a big thing. And I bowled. I mean, I was okay. You know what I mean? I was nowhere near my father or his father. But I was drawn to this movie because I thought, hey, look at this. Bowling. My mother's going to love it. It's going to remind us, you know, of the old man. This this will be a fun time.
1: And great cast, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you see Jeff Bridges in a movie, John Goodman. Busemi who was coming off of Fargo as well and was great in that. So you're just like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great.
0: Yeah. We thought <laughs> I had no idea really what we were in for. So I loved the movie. I was laughing. I was fully involved. And when we came to the ending, I was like, wait, that's the ending of the movie? <laughs> like, it didn't make sense to me. I didn't feel like we had taken an entire journey. Like, I was really enjoying it. But when we hit the end, it was just like I ran into a wall at 200 miles an hour. And I was like, wait, you know? So it was like, I loved it, couldn't fully process it. And this brings me back to Raising Arizona because Raising Arizona is a movie that I saw when I was very young. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I just, I didn't, I couldn't process all of it. Now, I was a lot further along than when I was, you know, as a kid watching Raising Arizona, but I was like, hmm. So when I actually started to look at the movie in a a different way was when I got to find the real appreciation. Um, And I'll explain. There's a lot of things in this movie that might seem normal on the surface. There are tropes that we would find in a private eye story or a private dick story. (laughs) if We want to go that way. Like Sam Elliott, right? The narration. What Sam Elliott says makes no real sense and has no real bearing on the story whatsoever. None. (laughs) He just sounds great and he looks great. So it's like, Once you accept these things about the movie, then you're like, oh, okay, I really understand where we're headed. And in terms of the journey, it's like the whole thing is, I I don't know, it's episodic, which is like what these what these uh, detective stories were like as well. But there, there was more closure. I mean, again, though, we did have closure in this. You know, the mystery is solved.
1: Yeah, but the the mystery is solved by showing that there basically is no mystery. It was just <laughs> yeah. I mean, I actually have to say, like one of the things that I, I I thought about this time is that yeah, I'm kind of jumping to the end of the movie or three fourths way through the movie, but there's this great scene where Jeff Bridges as the dude is talking to Jackie Treehorn at Treehorn's like Malibu, you know, palace, right, and you know, they've gone through this discussion and whatever, and, uh, he gets a, Treehorn gets a phone call, and he's writing something down in this notepad, and the dude is kind of, like, eyeballing him while he's writing this down, and then Treehorn leaves the room, and Jeff Bridges, like, runs over to the notepad and, like, scribbles over the top of it, like, to try to figure out what, you know, profound information has been, you know, written down in this, call and it's just a caricature of like a, a stick figure dude with a boner
0: <laughs> a massive a boner. massive boner. massive boner yeah
1: <laughs> and that's kind of like the cohen's did that to us like they you know made you think they had this intricate mystery going on but it was really just a scribble of a dude with a big boner And, and, you know, that's just a metaphor for the whole thing. And I love it Um, (laughs) because it is kind of like undercutting, but at the same time, you're still getting a good movie, you know, but in, and in the same way that in a Raymond Chandler book or film, the detective is going through like this episodic story and each little episode, he's picking up a clue that helps him piece together the ending here we have the dude going through all these little episodes thinking that he's picking something up, or you know, thinking that he's being misled with a red herring or whatever, and then at the end, it's kind of just crap like nothing happened. Well, yeah, it,
0: it's exactly like the Shakespeare quote,
1: like the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech from Macbeth.
0: Yes, yeah, that's exactly it. And then the Coens later did Macbeth, <laughs>
1: yeah. Right. Uh, The line is, it is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that perfectly sums this up. Everyone calls the dude a loser, right, throughout the entire thing. So we could say he's a fool, but he is intelligent. He says from the beginning that he thinks that there is no mystery. You know, he says that he thinks this is just a scam. So, I mean, he's able to, to have that and we also have of course you know donny right who barely gets to talk <laughs> yeah. in this piece you know he just kind of gets shit on the I whole am the time i'm the walrus <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he just kind of gets shit on the whole time and and then he dies you know and you're just like wait i'm like you're you're like donny died why what was the significance what was the significance of Donnie dying? And then Walter, of course, gives the worst eulogy you've ever time. heard. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is, it is that you're being led down all these threads um, that could be part of a mystery, but the meaning is just not there. There yeah. is none. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the whole point. But it's still such a good story. But at the beginning, when I first saw this, I didn't get that at all. I was extremely actually frustrated Yes, by the fact that there was no meaning, you know, behind anything in the end. And I watched this alone, I think, um, when I was in grad school. So this came out in 98. I didn't watch it until probably 2000. When I was in grad school, I was super broke and I never went to the movies, but... My one thing that I would do for myself is that I had a Blockbuster video card yeah. and I would go to Blockbuster maybe every other weekend or whatever and rent like four movies and just hang out and watch movies by myself on the weekend. Such an exciting lifestyle. Um, hey, I would
0: have loved it. That, that's <laughs> that's something that's completely up my alley, by the way. I. Staying home, watching movies, playing video games. I mean, that is a lifestyle. I yeah. mean, that is college. I well, mean, yeah.
1: I I'd read books and I watched movies. That was like my, my big thing. Um, so this was one of the movies that I rented. And the reason I rented it is because I also like bowling. I, I actually took bowling class in college because we had to take a P.E. activity and I picked bowling <laughs> Um, mostly because it seemed like the least strenuous activity. But it can hurt your back. It's not. No, it's not. It's not. I mean, the ball is super heavy. Um, but you know, it was a lot of fun. I took it with my friends, Amanda and Natalie. We had a, a team called the gutter graduates. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, we, my, my final exam was, you know, to complete three scoring grids and, you know, made an A-plus in the class, so that's right. cool. But, yeah, bowling seems fun. You know, like the actors in this, it's Coen Brothers. I love them from Raising Arizona. I was like, sure, this will be great. And I had also really liked Fargo as well. So I thought, you know, I was all in for something great, but it was not great to me the first time. I may have even rented Kingpin around the same time. Oh, wow which is another 90s bowling movie directed by Brother team, Right. Um, Also, well, that movie I've rewatched and not changed my opinion, (laughs) initial opinion of. Um, It's kind of terrible, but it is a Farrelly Brothers movie, so that's kind of what I should have been expecting from the get-go on that. But uh, subsequently, you and I started dating... Which, by the way, we've been dating for 21 years now. Wow. Well, not dating, but we've been together oh, yeah. for 21 years We got married, right? Now. We did that. Yeah, somewhere in there we got married. But, okay. Uh, you know, yeah, I, after I had seen this by myself, you and I ended up watching it together, and we, I think through talking about it, started to understand it more and enjoy it more you had already really liked it oh yeah well it was
0: that was the thing like we cracked through okay I'm in college when this comes out and you know all of us were like wow there is really something happening here so we would get together and we would watch it and we would watch it and we would watch it, we would watch it. then we started doing the lines right there's so many great lines it's, to pick um, up
1: yeah it's immensely quotable yeah, yeah.
0: and we were doing weight Russians all the time. <laughs> You know what I mean? It was college. I don't know. Maybe there was marijuana. I don't know. Maybe there was. I don't know.
1: Well, for someone, not for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I never, like, was uh, a pothead at all. I didn't even, like, do anything with it until it was, like, legal because I'm such a goody two-shoes. Nothing wrong with that. I I think, you know,
0: I respect that. Everybody has their, their own ideas. But my friends and I... We were wild, and we had a great time, and and we really enjoyed it. And what's great about The Big Lebowski is it is so subversive. It's supposed to be, you know, like a mystery, but really it's saying this mystery is bullshit every step of the way. And I don't think you can get any better than that because the dude is based on Jeff Dowd, right? And this is a counterculture guy. You know, he's an activist, very intelligent. Also an amazing promoter. Yeah. Right?
1: It's really interesting because you have this person who's perceived as like the super slacker. Mm -hmm. Um, Even the Coens told uh, the the costume person that they should uh, shop for a a character who's terminally relaxed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you have this idea of this person who is a super slacker, but in real life, this guy even though he has that persona is like a super hard worker. I think that's actually such a California thing anyway. Because everyone in California who's from here, uh, really has like this persona of being like this relaxed like surfer, slacker, whatever dude. But most of these people have like eight different jobs. Oh, yeah. And you can't even go to a party with them without it turning into a work conversation. So, you know, I think it's a very California thing.
0: Well, this movie was just so much different from everything that was out there at the time. And I would say part of it is it did kind of emanate this California vibe of hanging out, like you said. And this was long before we moved out here. And I knew the reality of once you're out here, you have, you know, 16 different jobs. (laughs) You're working all the time. This was like, you know, I'm listening to the Eagles, right? And it's very funny because, you know, in this movie, the dude famously hates the Eagles. Yes. And the Eagles were, you know, kind of the symbol of of this laid-back, chill atmosphere out here. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as time went on and you learned about the inner workings of the band and there was a lot going on, it wasn't laid-back. It was a very hard heavy you know kind of experience and in 1998 when this came out i mean let's talk about you know what were the big movies in 1998 titanic right we had that
1: which had actually come out in 1997 but was still going mega strong well into 1998
0: big time we had there's something about mary farrelly brothers Mm -hmm. we had fear and loathing in las vegas you know, that came out a few months after this, I think. You know, so it's like all these movies were kind of like, you know, just really different. In the 90s, I felt like we had a lot of movies that were very hard. You know, even if it was funny, it, it was hard. Like, you know, yeah. we had the faculty. I would say that was, you know, mostly fun. I love it. You know, that, that's a whole other story.
1: Well, LA Confidential would have been around this time as well, I guess.
0: It, that That sounds right. I mean, this is around the time of... Requiem for a Dream, I think, was a couple Ooh. years out. Still, yeah, I know. That's but a hard I mean, one. or maybe it was around then. But the the movies, generally speaking, were hard. You know, we had Armageddon, right? Armageddon was big, but again, spoiler alert: Armageddon, people die. You know what I mean? People sacrifice themselves. It wasn't just like you know a good time at the movies. There was always something that was very weighted that we would that we would see in these movies. And with The Big Lebowski, it felt like, okay, so we're going into a movie where people don't work, get high, and bowl. You know, I know that Walter works. He owns a security company. But we follow the story through the dude who most certainly does not work.
1: Well, and we don't, yeah, we have no idea where he gets his money from. He's like writing a check (laughs) for a a carton of half and half at the beginning. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) So, he's bound to have some sort of money somewhere, but it's a post-dated check, too. And then he hasn't paid his rent because this poor landlord's coming over and telling him it's the 10th. He's writing the check for the 11th. Like, (laughs) he's just, he's a bit of a mess, that uh, dude. What the landlord
0: really wants is he wants him to see his show. Yeah. The the wonderful, you know, dance show, the performance art that he does. And that's played by this guy, Jack Keller, if I'm saying that correctly. It's K-E-H-L-E-R. He's actually from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He actually died this year.
1: Oh, that's you know, too bad. A few bad. months ago.
0: Yeah, huge character actor.
1: I loved him in this because his... Like, his dance art piece was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. It was hilarious.
0: And I like the Walter shows up to it in a suit. Yeah. You know, it's like he's a proud dad. And there's just you know?
1: one other guy in the back <laughs> of the audience. Yeah. And yeah. then just Walter, the dude, and Donnie are there.
0: So good.
1: So, the dude, Walter, and Donnie are pretty odd as this team up, right? Sure. It's not just me. I mean, hmm. like... You have Donnie who, you know, isn't allowed to get a word in AdWise. I feel really sorry for anyone named Donnie <laughs> after this movie came out because I'm sure that they've been told, shut the fuck up, you're out of your element, like, to they are ready to just change their name. Back to this movie being super quotable, like, you can't stop yourself from saying, like, every line in this.
0: No, you can't stop um,
1: yourself. And in fact, you have a story about uh, uh, an interesting time when you used one of these lines
0: (laughs) oh yeah i was doing background work on this cohen brothers movie hail caesar and we were at the los angeles theater in downtown los angeles it's this old theater very pretty and so i was background and we happened to be walking by joel cohen and i was like oh why not so (laughs) as you know, I'm in this this file of people walking by Joel Cohen in the back of the Los Angeles Theater. I stop for a second in front of him and I say, I can get you a toe. (laughs) (laughs) And he kind of smiled and I moved on. And, you know, I felt good that I got to like deploy the line to the author, you know, just to show that respect.
1: Well, and you do have like a, a softened look of Walter. In real life, yeah. you know, you're like a big guy with, you know, the little facial hair, although you probably didn't have it at that point for Hail Caesar. No, I didn't. Um, but, yeah, you kind of have a Walter kind of a, a look. So I thought that was great that you got to do a Walter line to a Cohen brother. <laughs> that was pretty good. I mean, I the
0: other one I had was uh, I was doing uh, extra work in Boston many years ago. It was for the movie R.I.P.D. and Jeff Bridges is in that movie. And he just eats, you know, with the rest of the crew. So we were eating in like this bar or this restaurant, whatever, you know, that was shut down for production. And, you know, Jeff Bridges walked by me and I actually had my headphones on. <laughs> my jaw just dropped and I said, far out, you know? And he was like, hi. Yeah. <laughs> he was like this totally normal guy. And I'm like, dah, dah, dah. you
1: know. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's that's a normal response. I'm sure he gets that a lot.
0: Yeah. He might have actually said hi first, so maybe it's a little bit better. He said hi, and then I was
1: like, oh, my God. <laughs> Starstruck. The dude,
0: yeah, the dude talked to me. Yeah, it was a huge moment, huge moment. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, growing up, this movie was like this phenomenon, right? This is what took over our lives. You know, I, I was saying it was in college when it came out, you know, and you were, too, Everyone I knew, we couldn't stop with this movie. We couldn't stop with the white Russians. We couldn't stop with the lines.
1: (laughs) Saying the lines, not the cocaine. (laughs)
0: So, like, we couldn't stop with, like, saying that's marvelous, you know? Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, Brant is kind of maybe my favorite character in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like, the more I watch it, the more I love it. Philip Seymour Hoffman was such an awesome actor in so many things. But this, like, little part of Brandt was just one of my favorites because he got to say so many things. He's so ridiculous as just this toady of the big Lebowski. And I, I just, I think he's perfect. I actually read that David Cross had auditioned for the role. Oh, wow. And he, you know, then saw the movie with Hoffman and was like, oh, yeah, no, that's that's the way that... It should be done. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think not often do you watch a movie where somebody else got a part that you wanted and be like, oh, well, yeah, they deserved it more than me. <laughs> but he said that. And I just can't even imagine anybody else doing this because his delivery is so perfect. And even just what he's doing with his face, you know, when when the big Lebowski calls the dude in to try to get him to be the bag man for this money drop you know, <laughs> the Big Lebowski is so emotional and Brandt is just like standing behind him kind of pretending to be emotional, but then he just needs to snap out of it and do things. And it's like you, you then see that he's not actually feeling emotional. He's just playing the part, you know, to be sympathetic to his boss. It's, it's so funny. It's perfect.
0: Well, in the scenes with the Big Lebowski and Jeff Lebowski and Brandt, it's really like he's an interpreter between the two of them. He does repeat everything, which is funny because we've talked about, or maybe we haven't talked about yet, Jeff Lebowski repeats everything that he hears. This aggression will not stand, man. That's from Bush at the beginning of the film.
1: Yeah, he does this throughout. And I, I really actually never noticed that until this moment that we watched it this time, that, you know, he will say stuff that was previously something he overheard in another scene. So Bush was on TV when he was buying the half-and-half half at Ralph's, doing the this aggression-cannot-stand speech. He then says it later when he's in the meeting with Lebowski. Then he does this, like, a bunch of other times.
0: An example where that really, like, is pushed to the limit is when he's with Maude Lebowski, when he's with Julianne Moore, right? She says, like, uh, something along the lines of, you know, sex can be a a zesty, fun enterprise, you know? And and she says something, you know, like, coitus. And then the dude is interested in his rug. And then she's like, are you interested in sex? And then he goes, oh, you mean coitus? She had literally just said that. Yeah. Like, that was a very poor line reading. But my, my point is, yeah, he is repeating things that people literally just said back to the person that said them.
1: And even certain characters will repeat a phrase that another character said when they weren't involved in it at all so it kind of gives it almost like this weird like dreamy quality Mm -hmm. where it's like wait did i hear that person say that or did they hear that person say that and they're repeating it like it just keeps going on and on like one example that i have is that when the the thug guys are at the beginning peeing on the rug Mm -hmm. they say do you see what happens lebowski to the dude and then that's exactly like the phrasing that uh walter is using way later when they're trying to catch little larry for like stealing the money he's like you see what happens larry and it's just said in like the exact it's the exact words and the exact kind of rhythm of the words, so it it just feels weird, you know?
0: No, that that's an excellent point, and I've never thought about that. Yeah. Never thought about that.
1: I don't know. Again, it just adds like an unreality, which I think is a big part of this, because we have like those dream sequence bits, which are hilarious and awesome.
0: Want them. Love them.
1: And those have like, you know, they lend this air of unreality as well. Um, those are happening kind of when whenever <laughs> the dude gets knocked out, which happens, like, far too many times um, in the movie. But, you know, it, it seems like the more he gets hit, the weirder things get. And that, like, gives you an unreality as well. Like, is he awake? Is he not? And he brings elements from what's happening in his life, into these dream sequences right so like the really awesome one where he is ends up in like this busby berkeley style kind of dance number has the bowling it has mod it has him uh the dude is actually wearing like the carl hungus outfit from the log jamming porn movie so, like, all of these different things that have been going on are kind of combined into this weird dream.
0: Well, there's even more. At the end, when the Nihilists are after him with the scissors, there is a large painting of scissors in Maud's apartment. <laughs> okay. And I just caught that on our last viewing. I never caught that before. So, yes, everything is tied together. It makes you wonder, is this the author trying to figure out a story? And it's like all of these characters are actually trying to find the story themselves. Like, what you know, what is this, right? If we have like this omniscient thing happening where everyone is repeating these same phrases, there is no way that anyone could know it.
1: No, I mean, but then we have Sam Elliott as like the narrator and it's like he doesn't know what's going on either. And he basically says as much like he's trying to explain the story at the beginning. And he keeps getting pulled off to the side or kind of for losing his train of thought. I mean, it's kind of like us doing the podcast, really. <laughs> um, you know, he's like, uh, you know, I don't want to say a hero, but and then he's like, I don't know what I'm saying. So It's like the narrator can't even control the story. It's just going out of control. And I think that that's really fun in like a meta kind of way. I enjoy stuff like that.
0: I do, too. There was an interview with the Cohen brothers where they talked about Sam Elliott coming up to them and saying, hey, boys, I'm happy to be here, but I, I don't really understand, you know, what I'm doing here. You know what I mean? Like, don't get me wrong. I'm happy for the job, you know, because his character, like we talked about, is saying nothing.
1: He He's just saying these platitudes or whatever. Yeah. And it's, it's like he doesn't get it. Well, Sam Elliott didn't get it. And the best part of it for me was that the Cohen brothers were like, Yeah, I mean, we kind of don't know what he's doing either, but <laughs> we just like it. We like you. We like your voice. So just go for it. <laughs> I mean, I love that they kind of didn't have a handle on it either because they also talked a lot in that interview about how pretty much, you know, all these characters are kind of based on. Other people that they actually know. So you had already mentioned the dude is based on this guy, um, Jeff Dowd. Yes. And then uh, Walter is based on a composite of like three different people. One of whom is John Milius, who directed Conan the Barbarian. Right. Um, And it's this kind of real right-wingy, kind of gun nut kind of guy.
0: Same guy that did Red Dawn.
1: And he looks... Well, the look of Walter, in my opinion, is very much based on Millius. They have the same haircut, kind of the same beard, the same glasses, the same like outfit. I mean, he just looks like identical to John Milius. Um, And that actually may- brings me to another thing. Well, before I go on to that. It's uh, the the idea of somebody having this rug that really tied the room together mm-hmm. is based on a real person who kind of had found a rug in the alley or something and <laughs> taken it into their house, which is a big thing here. We have a lot of people in L.A. who leave, you know, because you can't afford it or you came out here to be an actor and you crapped out, which happens like nine out of ten times or whatever music. A lot of people come out here to do like these creative dreams and some people make it but some people don't and you know people end up leaving so when they leave they end up leaving all their stuff here and so you can find a lot of good furniture and stuff like that just kind of sitting out behind the apartment buildings and stuff. We have a coffee table like that.
0: Yeah we sure do and I mean I've gotten other pieces from the alley. The alley is an amazing place. I mean, we also have a rug that I purchased from a Goodwill type of store, and it's amazing. It's this amazing, enormous Persian rug. It had a $40 price tag. I had 20% off you know like as soon as i saw it I was like oh wow and i was like i got to get this thing and it was heavy the thing weighs like 60 70 pounds it, yeah. it's pretty heavy
1: it's huge and it's really nice yeah the the rug's probably
0: worth 5 600 dollars it's crazy you know how how you can find like Things like that. But it must be, you know, someone passed away. Somebody left. They they just wanted to get rid of it. And I had to, like, you know, kind of fend people off. Yeah. Like, as soon as I was, like, taking the rug, like, someone's like, oh, what's that? What's that? Oh, I want that. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I've been here. I've been looking <laughs> at the rug. Somebody
1: told you they were taking yeah, it. Yeah, they
0: were, like, trying to take it. Like, I was there. I sent you a picture because I always do this. I'm a responsible shopper. I'm like, hey, Georgia, I found this rug. It's 40 bucks. I think it's incredible. Are you in? And she was like, yeah, so we're doing this exchange. And I'm like at the rug. I've like got my hand on the rug. Like, you know, it's like we're playing baseball. I feel like my hand is (laughs) on it you can't take it and then somebody just like rolls up out of nowhere they have not been there and then they're trying to paw it then they're trying to take it they're like oh we're gonna buy this and i'm like no i'm sorry i've been here and i had been so yeah i, I like i had to i had to fight off some some enemies yeah. and uh <laughs> well, and
1: it really does tie the room together it does The in room... our apartment and now you know luckily no one's come and peed on it
0: oh my god if somebody <laughs> came and peed on our rug i can't even tell you what would happen? I mean, we might just roll him up in the rug and throw him out the second story window. You Maybe.
1: Know? I mean, that probably wouldn't do much. It's not that tall. But, yeah. I love. <laughs> what I love is that Lebowski then goes to Big Lebowski and he's trying to, like, negotiate, you know, payment for his rug. He can't get it because the Big Lebowski is just like, are you employed? And, like, is such a, a jerk. Yeah. And so the dude kind of like gives up and you're just like, oh, he just gave up. But then when he walks out, he tells Brant, yeah, he told me I could just take any rug in the place.
0: I love that. So
1: he ends up taking this much nicer rug and leaving with it. But then that gets taken back. I mean, the whole thing with the rug back and forth is very funny throughout the movie.
0: They said that the Cohen brothers said they got a note from Joel Silver, which was that the dude should get his rug back or get a rug at the end of the film. And they said, no, no. But they said now that it's, you know, later, time has passed, they're like, yeah, we kind of wish, you (laughs) know, we did that. I mean, because it is. It is the journey of this rug. That's what sets everything in motion.
1: Yeah, I guess that would have given too much meaning to the film, though.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, the fact that just nothing happens. Yeah, and then it just ends. It, It does just end, and it really is summed up with that Jackie Treehorn you know, etching that the dude does. Just like you said, that's really all it is. It's like, you think you have this big clue. You have a guy with a big boner.
1: You you have nothing. nothing.
0: You have Dick, literally. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a private Dick, a Seamus. You mean he's a (laughs) Seamus?
1: The John Polito character comes in as like, I'm a fellow (laughs) Seamus. And, you know, that's like this word for private detective from these old movies. And I thought it was really funny uh, because, again, it's like you think there's this big thing. Like, like the dude goes out. He sees, like, this little beetle car that's been following him. He goes over, you know, and it's just another private detective that's, you know, just been following him because he thinks, like, he can kind of piggyback off of his investigation to find Bunny for the Knutson's, her parents. And... (laughs) And he's like, Oh, I really like what you're I really like what you've been doing. You know, I like your style or whatever. And that's like the second time that somebody's talking about liking his style later when Sam Elliott says it to him too.
0: I didn't even think about the fact that both of those guys say it to him. Yeah, it's like I don't
1: know if that's the exact verbiage, but that's what Polito is kinda of saying. He's like, I like how you do what you do, man. You know, and and the dude is like, what are you talking about? No, I'm
0: pretty sure you're right. I'm pretty sure John Polito does say, I like your style. Because he says, you're putting one side against another. You're in bed with everybody. It's uh, beautiful stuff.
1: So I wanted to circle back to what we were talking about with uh, Walter being, like, based kind of on John Milius. Oh, yeah. Because I don't think we were done with that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's so much. I mean... You know, we see Walter Sobchak, and he is always angry. He's always talking about war, right? Yeah. John Milius wrote Apocalypse Now. And when he wrote Apocalypse Now, he kept a loaded gun on his <laughs> desk just to make sure he could, like feel the danger you know john millius is also like a surfing enthusiast so it's interesting because that's completely different <laughs> from someone that's very interested in more and more strategies and approaches his films like he's a general <laughs> this guy has a lot of contradictions and bringing all that over into walter is incredible and, and like you said the appearance the look the similarity between john goodman and john millius with what they did I mean, that's great work.
1: Yeah, it really is. Well, I didn't actually know about those different sides of John Milius, but that kind of makes it make more sense to me. Because one of the questions that I actually had this time was that I was thinking about, like, why Walter and uh, the dude are friends. Because they come across very different, you know? I mean, (laughs) Walter is very, like, right-wingy, carries a handgun, pulls it on poor Smokey. oh Smokey! you know in the middle of the line in the middle of the game for crossing the line i have to say like that when he's like yelling market zero dude is probably one of the the things that i say the most yeah like whenever i think something sucks i'd say market zero dude like in real life all the time um but yeah and then you have the dude who's like this real counterculture like almost anarchist type of guy Mm -hmm. (laughs) certainly like rebellious he doesn't you know conform to society standards at all and then you have walter who's just seems like the other end of the spectrum but you know i don't know walter has a lot of different things going on because he's also like an observant jewish guy Right. Like he I guess we assume that's because he was married to this ex wife. Right. Whose dog, which is not a Pomeranian. He is taken care of. He keeps saying it's a Pomeranian and it's a show dog and it has papers, but it's like just a little terrier. It's really funny. Also later they call a ferret a marmot like fifty times. Um, so they can't identify animals in this movie either. Sidebar.
0: Well, I think that this is really good, what you're bringing up, because this kind of goes back to a point that you had earlier. How can people be omniscient in the story? How can people that never met each other repeat the same phrase? Sometimes phrases sweep the nation. Maybe there was a big television show or a book or commercial, whatever. But, okay, let's look at it this way. So, we're looking inside of someone's mind. Right, Kind of like that old television show, Herman's Head. Basically, what what I'm talking about, this show, Herman's Head, what it was about is we saw inside this guy, Herman, his head. And there were these different personality traits that would speak up. And so we could see inside his head to see what these different parts of him were saying. And that is very much what I feel like we have here. Because, right, we have Walter, all war, right? We have the dude all peace and then we have donnie and we we don't know much about what donnie thinks because he's always told to shut the fuck up so it's like is it these different personalities inside of one person talking to each other That's interesting
1: well i mean yeah donnie is like such a non-sequitur at all times like that's why i said i'm the walrus earlier (laughs) that was
0: excellent by the way excellent (laughs) deployment
1: I mean, so the dude is talking about, the dude and Walter are talking about what Lenin said, right? Mm-hmm. And they're talking about Lenin, the, you know, Russian leader. But Donnie is just like thinking that they're talking about John Lennon. And he just keeps saying, I am the walrus. And it means it doesn't have anything to do with anything. And Walter just gets so irritated, you know, and that's just another time when he's actually right that Donnie is out of his element he doesn't know what they're talking about you know Donnie is a weird character I really don't know what's going on with him and again I don't know why he hangs out with them he's just always getting berated like Walter's always yelling at him and I just don't know he seems like a really good bowler too you know, I feel like maybe Donnie could do better on a team with Smokey, you know. Oh, yeah. But no, he's just hanging out with a dude and Walter. Um, and, you know, the whole thing with Donnie is like every time we see him bowl, bowl he hits a strike. Except for that very last time mm-hmm. when he gets a spare. And it's like he, he his face kind of falls. And it's like it's an omen that something bad is going to happen. And, of course... That's when, you know, he has the heart attack later that night and passes away, you know.
0: Well, it could be. Again, if we're going with this idea of, like, different parts of a person, maybe Donnie is an ignored inner child.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: Right? So he would be annoying. He <laughs> is always buoyant. Like, you can't really, you know, put him down. He doesn't have, like, anything where, like, the world's beat me up, you know, or any of that stuff. He, he just is a happy person. And that's, that's kind of what I get from him, you know. And he remains happy despite all of the cutdowns, you know. He doesn't let that bring him down ever. And I feel that it must be something of, like, we're looking at it as a normal friend group. It must be something where there is friendship, but this is just how these people are. Yeah, I feel like Walter... And the dude would look out for Donnie. I feel like if Donnie needed help, they would be there.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when Donnie has collapsed in the parking lot, like Walter is like holding him, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to kind of comfort him while the dude goes to get help. So I do think that they they do have care for each other, but I do think it's just presented really in a funny way. <laughs> You know, and then we have, uh, we haven't talked about the character of Jesus, which is John Turturro. Yes. Um, And he's kind of like the major antagonist for all of them. Like, none of them are cool with Jesus. No. Um, So, I find this whole thing to be a little bit dated. I don't think that we would be comfortable now having, like, John Turturro playing, like, this extremely um stereotypical kind of hispanic character but at the time it was kind of like i don't think anybody really thought about it no I mean, in no one 90s. did yeah
0: no, never did and
1: actually he had played a hispanic character in a play and that's what gave the cohen's the idea to have him play this character in this and jesus is like this really ridiculous joke Of a character. Yeah. He's also a pedophile, which is kind of played for laughs. Yeah. In a lot of ways, again, feels very dated and something I don't think would fly now. But uh, he did a lot with like that really small part. And I think that he kind of is super memorable. But I also like all the things they did around that. Like the song that's playing... (laughs) When he's doing, you know, his strike and then his dance and shining up the balls, which is ridiculous. Yeah. That was like a thing that Totoro came up with, Mm. right? We saw an interview about that. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it's playing like this kind of uh, Spanish music version of Hotel California by the Eagles in the background. So, you know, we find out later that the dude hates the eagles Mm -hmm. and the soundtrack of the jesus character is the eagles hotel california so i thought that was really funny
0: you know i never put that together thank you
1: just thought of it today wow um but yeah we have really enjoyed liam
0: liam is so good (laughs) liam like with the pointing liam doesn't talk but Liam's great, that close-up of his belly.
1: When he's dancing, yeah. Liam is, is Jesus's rolling partner in the bowling league. Um, yeah, this bowling league, I could have had the movie just be about that because all the characters in the bowling alley are hilarious. I love Smokey. I,
0: I've got actually some really good info on Smokey. But Drop before, it on me. I will, I will, but I, I want to finish up with jesus okay i would say the biggest line when we were in college was liam and me are gonna fuck you up.
1: yeah dios me and liam and me
0: well and then we made it we like we're like well how do we say this in public and so what we did is we just changed it to liam and me so like you know if like we meant the line we would just say to another when we were out Liam and me and be like oh yeah
1: yeah (laughs) that's really good yeah
0: well we had all of this like shorthand for this film because there's a lot of it again you know you couldn't really say I mean we were in college and you know we were wild kids you know what I mean we had fun I also really appreciated the understated nature of a lot of the lines I mean this is going a little off before we we go into Smokey but I do want to mention this about the dialogue as well there's a lot of understated dialogue in this film, and it really appears the more you watch the film. Some automatically pops to you, but one of my favorite lines is when Jeff Lebowski is in with a big Lebowski who's like looking into the fire and having this meaningful, you know, monologue. You know, Jeff just sneaks in the line, Mind if I do a J? <laughs> you know? Good. Well, and that ties in wonderfully to The Big Sleep. You know, look at this, a tangent upon tangent. So George and I watched The Big Sleep. We watched the Howard Hawks film. Um, We did not read the Raymond Chandler book. We have it on the docket, but time did not allow. So when we watched The Big Sleep, there were a couple things that we picked up on. And in the film The Big Sleep, the person that hires... Our private detective hires Humphrey Bogart as Philip Marlowe, is actually an older man who cannot walk. He doesn't Mm -hmm. have the use of his legs and he can't drink anymore. So he had this man that came and hung around and that guy would drink. He was a younger (laughs) man. So he kind of liked it that he was hanging out with this guy who was younger, who could get fucked up. And I don't know, like he could kind of take it in vicariously just by this guy being here. So it's like it tied into this movie (laughs) with the mind if I do a J. There's all this really sly humor in this, these sly references, I feel, to the film. You know, because Bunny, the character of Bunny, okay? In, In the film, Philip Marlowe shows up at General Sherwood's house and he has two daughters, and one of them is promiscuous and comes on to Philip Marlowe instantly. And so, very clearly, we can identify that as Bunny from this film, you know. Yeah.
1: Which... But Bunny is the wife in this movie. They
0: changed it, yeah.
1: Instead of the daughter. And then he has a daughter, which is Maude. Mm-hmm. And what was funny is that, you know, they keep talking about Bunny being Maude's stepmother. And it's ridiculous, because Bunny is, like, barely out of her teens, if she is even out of her teens. And, you know, Maude is, like, this older, you know, woman. So it's really funny to have that her stepmom is, like, a child, basically.
0: It's great. It's great. Well, again, it's just, like, it's this humor... ...that they bring in. And Lauren Bacall has a very distinctive voice. Yeah. You know, and I love listening to her talk. And Julianne Moore has, like, this finishing school voice. That's what they said that she went for with this. And it, it it's like, again, they have elements of these characters. Yeah. Those touches are what made my last viewing of The Big Lebowski... ...much different than it's ever been. You know, there are these two thugs... ...that are always chasing around Marlowe the whole time... Now, they do not look like the two thugs that keep beating up Jeff Lebowski, the dude. But it's like, they're the guys. You're like, oh, these are the guys. And then there is a butler in the Sherwood household. Okay, this guy, the butler in The Big Sleep has no humor. He is a mean bastard, very cold. Yeah. And so the fact that they had Philip Seymour Hoffman as Brandt, be very warm, you know, it's just like he has, I think all those same emotions as the other Butler, but it's just like he put a happy face on, you know, he's kind of like Johnny Cab from total recall, (laughs) you know, he's just like, he's showing you, you know, like this, this pleasant, happy face when he doesn't really like you that much like he is definitely judging the dude mm-hmm. he doesn't oh, yeah. care about the big lebowski he's hoping he can get some money out of the deal well
1: and he definitely has a lot of disdain for bunny mm-hmm. you know uh, and and when the dude runs into bunny at the beginning you know she's like you know terrible she's like I'll suck your cock for a hundred dollars or whatever. And then Brant is like, you know, and then she's like, but Brant can't watch. Otherwise he has to pay, you know, or something to that effect. And then he's like, oh, that's marvelous. You know, he's just trying to stay proper and have everything be proper even though he's surrounded by completely improper people,
0: I think I think I know what it was. I think the line is: Bunny <laughs> says to uh, the dude, "I'll suck your cock for a thousand dollars," but Brant can't watch unless he pays a hundred. <laughs> okay. I think I think yeah. that's it. Yeah, but it's again, you got it. But yeah, it's just so I remember this, the dollar yeah, amount.
1: I, I, it's ridiculous. Yeah. The two of them are. Crazy. Brant, I mean, it just makes me want to have more Brant and Bunny oh, yes, interaction yes. because I just want to see him anywhere with her because it's so uncomfortable. It's like Cringe City, and I love it.
0: Yeah, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes with the two of them. No. You know, and I have also, no idea. No, and also when Bunny comes back to the Lebowski household at the end, she's, like, running around outside, and I think she might be naked. I think they're, like, her clothes are just, like, kind of thrown around. Like, it's a quick shot, and it was, like, in the background outside the windows. It's not in any way what the focus is. I'm like, whoa, is that what's happening? And, I mean, I also, you know, this is kind of uh, a funny note. So in The Big Sleep, okay, um, we have, you know, General Sherwood... And he has a spinal injury, so he does not have the use of his legs. Okay? But we can actually see the actor moving his legs a little bit. And then they actually had a remake of The Big Sleep. Robert Mitchum played Marlowe. And Jimmy Stewart was General Sherwood. And he could not stop moving his legs. Yeah,
1: these are like very uncrippled people. (laughs) Right paralyzed i mean i actually think that uh david huddleston Mm -hmm. did the best job of anyone um, because i kind of bought that he could be but i just i love the scenes with him that you were referring to the one where the dude says mind if i have a j because there's a lot of really funny things going on in that scene and i love how the dude is characterized here because he doesn't take any of this seriously. And it turns out that he shouldn't have been taking any of it seriously because it's all bullshit. Yes. Yes, Bunny is gone, but she hasn't been kidnapped. She, like, kidnapped herself, which mm-hmm. is what he thought. And he turned out to be right. And they're, you know, saying, Your life is in her hands, which he later repeats to Walter. But, you know, they don't care. They're giving him this money, supposedly, to to pay the ransom. But they don't really want to pay the ransom because he doesn't want Bunny back. So it's just like all of this is totally fake. And so he's kind of right to have like this non-reaction where he says, Mind if I do a J?" You know my one of my favorite parts of that is when he reads <laughs> the,
0: the ransom, ransom note yes. like really slowly, yeah,
1: and then he's just like, "Oh, it's a bummer, man." <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, okay, your wife is kidnapped, she's gonna be murdered, and it's a bummer. Like, and he says it while he's like trying to hold in a lung fall, so he's like, "It's a bummer, man." <laughs> it's just super funny, and. You know, then you know they're talking about what what's what makes a man. Yes. You know, and and the dude is like, yeah, they and a pair of testicles. You know, because <laughs> he just is like, you know, he doesn't care. Like the you know the big Lebowski is putting on a hell of a show here, and you know the dude just doesn't give a crap.
0: No, and I mean at the very end of the film. When Walter and the dude come to face the Big Lebowski and we have, you know, Walter saying, I've seen Spinal's dude, <laughs> another, you know, amazing yeah. line. It's really good because it calls back to these other film adaptations of The Big Sleep. So I feel like, again, this is like the the audience's revenge, you know, from these other you know, these other films. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, we're going to prove that this guy can walk. This guy is total BS. And, you know, and then Walter like goes all the way and pulls him out of the chair and he's like, he could walk. And then he just falls to the ground. And it's and pretty awful. It's horrendous. It's yeah. horrendous. It's
1: one of the most actually terrible things that happens in the movie. Yeah. Um, And I think that's really interesting to point out because There's a whole bunch of times in this where, you know, stuff that could be horrible is happening, but this is like the first time that it's actually real. And it's also kind of the first time when they have thought something was fake and it wasn't fake because they thought that things were fake this whole time and it has been fake.
0: Yeah, like the toe. It was not Bunny's toe. Yeah. It was actually Amy Mann who played the the girlfriend of the Nihilists. They cut off her toe and that's what they gave to the Big Lebowski to prove that, you know, they didn't want any funny stuff and they wanted their money.
1: And, And yeah, we think the whole time, like the first thing that the dude says about Bunny is that she kidnapped herself. Walter super latches on to that, mm-hmm. you know, but then the dude starts trying to backtrack. Well, I said, I thought that, you know, and we come to find out it's true. You know, when they have that whole discussion in Johnny's restaurant about the toe, and Walter's like, I can get you a toe. I can get you a toe by three o'clock today <laughs> with nail polish, <laughs> you know, and it's it's like what he's saying seems implausible, but it's actually what happened. They did get somebody else's toe. You know, somebody sacrificed their toe thinking they were going to get all this money. Yeah. But Lebowski doesn't actually have any money. He's in this huge house and everything. But we later find out from Maude that he doesn't have money. It's all her mom's money, I think.
0: Well, I also like that the Cohen brothers said... That with Walter and the dude, in terms of their relationship, they saw them as much more of like a bickering couple.
1: I thought that was so interesting, too. We heard that on that uh, interview that we watched. And I never would have put that together myself. But it does kind of make sense when, you know, you see this couple who's like always you know, bitching at each other. And you're like, how do these people even end up together? Right. And that's the same question I have about the dude and Walter. Like, how did these two guys become friends? And obviously they do care about each other, but they're just constantly, constantly fighting. And I thought it was interesting to build on that, what they had said about how the dude is just really chill most of the time until he starts talking to Walter and then he gets really stirred up and pissed off. Yeah. And that's when he stops having his normal, like, laid-back dude persona.
0: Yeah. Well, it. I mean, I think one of the best examples of that is when they go to do the the money handoff.
1: <laughs> that scene is oh, amazing. Oh, man.
0: The, the money handoff is such a good scene that that is always what I think about when I think about this film. You know, Walter jumping out of the car
1: with the uzi
0: (laughs) saying it's go time and he hits the ground hard and then the uzi just goes off and shoots up the car and then like the car just crashes into a light pole you know that car i I mean that's another part of this film is that car it's like the blues brothers you know
1: indestructible. like he has two head-on collisions that i can think of in this (laughs) The first one is that, where the Uzi is just spinning and shooting on the ground, and it shoots out the tire, and he goes into, like, a light bulb or whatever, and then the other one is when he drops the roach on his crotch, Oh god! and, like, is trying to pour beer on it to put it out, and then he crashes into a dumpster. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, a... oh, God. Uh, incidentally, we watched a little clip of the uh, actual Jeff Dowd. And he was like, he used that as an example of how the character is exactly like him. And I thought that was amazing. She's yeah. Like, yeah, I would totally do that. <laughs> well, yeah, that car, well,
0: then it gets completely destroyed by the owner of the Corvette. Mm-hmm. After Walter had destroyed his Corvette, <laughs> thinking it was Larry's. Uh, another great scene. But yeah, the, the car is just like, it reminds me of the Blues Brothers, okay? So they have the Blues Mobile, which is an X. Ex- police car right and throughout the film more and more things happen to it and at the very end of the film (laughs) they stop they don't need to drive it anymore and the car just completely falls (laughs) apart you know it's it has it has that feeling like I don't know it's these, these weird objects are like a really important part of the film like the dude's car the rug and then I think about the line that the dude says to the chief of police in Malibu He's, he says, in reference to Jackie Treehorn, he treats objects like women.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good scene, too. And that's actually based on uh, one of these people that the, the Coen brothers knew also. And I guess the person had gotten arrested or gotten taken in by somebody uh, that was like the Santa Monica chief of police. Mm-hmm. And he did, like, say, stay out of my beach community, <laughs> which is what this guy said. To him um after he's been you know drugged by jackie treehorn i mean ben gazzara we haven't really i don't oh, even know if man. we've mentioned him by name yet but like no ben gazzara in this is giving me very similar vibes to his same character from roadhouse
0: brad wesley yes i have that same point <laughs> yeah. it is the same character they are the same they are the same And it's incredible because the Brad Wesley character in Roadhouse, okay, he is an unbelievable bastard. He's a villain. But we all know villains are juicy characters. Yeah. And when you have really talented people, they can make them so engaging. They're the ones that, you know, make everything happen. If we didn't have bad guys in movies, bad people, you know, we wouldn't have our stories. And, you know, in Roadhouse, again, spoiler alert, um, you know, brad wesley dies you know in the film after he's shot by about i don't know what eight ten men and and then they just say they didn't see anything but it's all
1: super fine it's
0: fine yeah the police come and they just tell everyone that they didn't see anything and uh yeah and then there's this one uh henchman of uh brad wesley's that has lived and what happened is a uh, a full stuffed bear fell on him and uh that guy goes a uh, bear landed on me. And, <laughs> and everybody
1: just was laughing. Yeah. Like they just committed like a murder, like yes. a straight up murder. Yes. And everybody's just like, ha, 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 ha. that's marvelous. It's like a Brandt move that they're having there. I love Jackie Treehorn because it is like the same scumbag Ben Gazzara mm-hmm. character. You know, in this, he's like running like porn empire. I guess. And he, you know, has lent money out to Bunny and that's kind of the catalyst for the whole thing. So you think it's going to be this big thing, you know, when the dude finally confronts Jackie Treehorn, (laughs) but it's, it fizzles again into nothing. He just gets kind of drugged and set outside and he's like running down the street and gets picked up by the police yeah
0: it's nothing well it's in roadhouse this is a direct parallel okay patrick swayze's character dalton has rented this place across the lake from brad wesley he looks across the lake and there's this massive beach party right our introduction to jackie treehorn is these guys with like this trampoline throwing this topless woman up into the
1: air. And they're having like a bonfire beach party at the ocean. Yes. Yeah, that's really, I wouldn't have made that connection, but that's great.
0: Yeah, it's just like these night parties are crazy. And it's just like, and then you see Ben Gazzara roll up and you're like, wait, what What are we, what are we watching? He doesn't
1: even seem like he fits into this scenario, but he's such a great villain, I, I just. I love him. I love that they put him in this and basically just have him play Brad Wesley from Roadhouse, which we really have to do that maybe. Sam Elliott's also in Roadhouse. Right? See, they all come together. (laughs) This has a lot of Roadhouse connects that I'm really just making right now.
0: Yeah. No, that's good.
1: All right. So bring me back around to Smokey.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that was quite a tangent. Okay. All right. (laughs) So Smokey. Smokey is a country musician. By the name of Jimmy Dale Gilmore. (laughs) What? Yes. He has been nominated for three Grammys. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he is a musician. He has done some acting, you know, in a few things. I think he has like three or four credits on IMDb, if I'm not mistaken.
1: That's awesome.
0: Yeah. He is a music guy. (laughs) So it's like, okay, this is totally wild. Again, it's just completely subverting expectations. I think that Smokey is such a well-realized character. That, In a
1: small little part. Yeah. yeah the, and the, then the... he calls and is like, oh, sorry, dude, but I had to report this to the league. I love how like, calm-sounding he is when he's just been like threatened with a gun and it's like horrible. I do have a quick little Smokey note also, which is that people ask him all the time, Did you have your toe over the line? Ooh. And he said he's never going to tell anybody he's going to take the secret to his grave.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) I don't think he did. I don't think he had his toe over the line.
1: I don't think so either. I mean, Walter just strikes me as the kind of guy who is here to cause trouble. And if there isn't any trouble, he's going to make trouble. Yeah, Walter is very pissed off at his own life. Yeah, well, he's he's very antagonistic. He's just an angry guy. And he's, yeah, just like you said, he's very mad about his situation with his ex-wife. He kind of, like, does all this stuff for her. And he's just not a very happy person. And he's always talking about Vietnam and everything. And it's not even appropriate. (laughs) Like... It comes to a head when they're going to scatter Donnie's ashes, you know, and he just starts talking about Vietnam after he's like talking about Donnie being a surfer and all this stuff. And he's like, so many men of my generation have died. And then he goes into it and and the dude just gets so pissed because he's just like, what does that have to do with anything? You know, and and then, you know, Walter actually feels bad about it because he knows he's messed up.
0: Yeah, I love that part. What's that shit about Vietnam? <laughs> Why does everything have to be a goddamn travesty with you?
1: <laughs> oh, my God, they're so great.
0: Yeah, they're they're just so much fun to watch, and I think that's really it. They're together because they're bickering. And also, we saw that roundtable that I, I think was just from a few years ago where they actually had Steve Buscemi... Jeff Bridges, John Goodman together. They're being interviewed on the Today Show. Yeah. And then the question was brought up, does Walter even have a military record? And John Goodman brought up a good point, and he said, I've known a lot of people that have served in the military, and they don't really... One talk about, you know, their
1: service. And that's been my experience and yours. Same. So it's like. I've talked about that before. So I thought that was a pretty good point. Like, you know, I think that Goodman's kind of, Goodman had said he had kind of come to the conclusion that if he was in the army, he was like, you know, carrying supplies or something, (laughs) not like actually seeing any action, but kind of just making it seem like bigger than it was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was, I, I mean, again, it's just like there's so many things. That we can look at with each and every character. There's no character in this that doesn't have some story. Like the nihilists, the nihilists have a band like Kraftwerk.
1: Oh yeah, like
0: right. Autobahn. Right. It's just like what Autobahn, you know. So it's like you have their story, you know, and these guys just want some money and they think they found a way to do it. They're not very threatening. You know, it's like the guy has the, the cricket mallet. He just yeah. smashes the answering machine.
1: Well, they're dressed ridiculously Yeah. Um, on the cover of their album and in the dream sequence and in real life. I mean, they look like the Mike Myers Dieter character <laughs> from Saturday Night Live. Sure. Nobody's going to understand that reference. Cause that's very old. But I remember. <laughs> um,
0: I'm old, too. I remember. Yeah.
1: But, you know. I love, though, that there's, like, a musical element there because the music in this movie is so good, too.
0: The music, okay, the music changed me musically. Now, I liked Bob Dylan. The Man in Me is my favorite Bob Dylan song. Well, wow. This song is this movie to me. If they did not have this song in this movie... I don't know that I would have been as instantly attracted to it. There is something about the two of these things that go perfectly together. Now, I don't know all the lyrics. I'll know a few words here and there, and I'll mumble. But I really enjoy, musically, how it sounds. It has that rolling, California-feeling That you would expect,
1: but also that country element in the background, which is like the Eagles, just like the Eagles. Even if you hate them, they have like that (laughs) country tinged rock thing going on. Yeah, that and that's that's what I
0: found. Like, so it's like we have Bob Dylan doing this kind of country thing at this point, you know, and, and it's kind of a different vibe. I didn't even know what record it was from. I had to look it up. So, I mean, we have that which kicks it off. Right. And the other songs I'm going to talk about out of order, but each and every one I was like, oh, wow. okay." so Captain Beefheart and his magic band. Like, I didn't know. I didn't know anything about Captain Beefheart and his magic band before this. Her eyes are a blue million miles. Love it. (laughs) Love it. Do, 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 do. you know like i will all like such a good groove such a good hook it's and,
1: a, yeah it's a good song i didn't know anything about that either right yeah for me the biggest one though i'm sorry i'm gonna go out of order is the kenny rogers in the first edition mm-hmm. i just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in that song kicks so much ass yeah and i was like Kenny Rogers? Are you kidding me? Right. I had no idea that's who that was. Yeah, Kenny Rogers kicked ass. Yeah, I knew him as like, you know, country music guy with the gray beard in the 80s, <laughs> you know, doing duets with Dolly Parton and stuff. Like, this is somebody my grandmother would listen to, you know? The Gambler. Yeah. Right. and And then we have like this totally awesome song. I don't even know how, what kind of music I would categorize that as but it doesn't really feel country it, it kind of it feels like a kind of funky rock song in a way I guess. Well
0: Kenny Rogers actually went that way first mm-hmm. and then he came over to this country situation. Yeah
1: and I did not know that. I and did so not either. Hearing the song like kind of was like wah whoa, wah? Whoa, whoa? You know so I love that they brought that in and it fits perfectly into that dream sequence um, because and you also have, you know, Jeff Bridges doing this dancing, oh, yeah, to it, which is absolutely hilarious.
0: Well, that song, I knew the song before the movie, and I, you know, I would hear it on the radio and I'd get excited because, again, this is back in the day where you would just be like eagerly waiting at the radio, <laughs> like, make my dream come true, play my song, please. And, um, when I saw this at the theater, and you know, it was a dream sequence to begin with. I felt like my prayers had been answered. I was like, oh, my God. They put this super kick-ass song in this movie, in this sequence. This is perfect. The only thing that I don't like is they edit the song. And I I know it's to fit the dream sequence. But that song is just, it's perfect. And this is where it belongs. This is what that song was for. It is for the Big Lebowski. In as much as I said, the man in me is the Big Lebowski. Just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in is also Big Lebowski. Like, these songs are this movie. I can't think of them separately.
1: Yeah, I really can't either. I mean, I didn't know the song before that, so for me, it's absolutely inextricably tied to this movie and to that sequence, in fact.
0: Yeah, I mean, we also had, of course, Nina Simone on here. Nina Simone I was familiar with at this point, but I didn't have, like, a Nina Simone library. I didn't even have a Nina Simone cassette record yeah. whatever. I, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, she was someone that I was exposed to earlier with a, uh, this is so weird. So there was that Luc Besson movie, Nikita. Mm -hmm. And then there was the American remake, Point of No Return, with Bridget Fonda and Gabriel Byrne. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Okay. In the remake, she really likes Nina Simone. And so that was how I got exposed to Nina Simone. So that was years earlier. So I was like, oh, I like Nina Simone. But it wasn't something where it was always, you know, in the forefront of my mind. You know, you're a young kid, you're doing a million things. Yeah. And so when Big Lebowski happened, I was like, oh, Nina Simone.
1: Well, and there's also the fact of music wasn't accessible at that time like it is now. We were just talking about this the other day in a totally different context. But like in the 90s, 80s, whatever, it wasn't easy to hear a song if you didn't have the cassette or, you know, the physical media yeah and especially because we were kids you couldn't just go out and buy whatever you wanted it wasn't like having a subscription to spotify and you can pretty much dial up whatever you want and if it's not on there it's on youtube or whatever and you just have to watch an ad this is like you had to specially go and figure it out i remember times when i would hear a song somewhere and i didn't have shazam so i had to like write down some of the lyrics and try to like drill into my head what the song was. Right. And then hope that I would hear it again on the radio and find out who the artist was so that I could then go and buy the tape or get a single or whatever. It was a lot more difficult to hunt down music. So when you would get a soundtrack like this, that had like all these kick ass songs on it in one spot, yeah, it was really exciting. Because then you could go and just get that instead of buying, like, you know, 10 albums with 10 different songs you were looking for.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's that exposure. We, we got that with this. Yeah, so much different. So much different with music back then. This soundtrack really pulled it together i mean gypsy kings doing hotel california i really like that version of it it's It's great great. i did not know the gypsy kings before this i mean well it's just gypsy kings but i put the the in there but you get it anyway and then also towns van sant doing dead flowers
1: oh yeah Mm -hmm.
0: now i like that and it fits perfectly in this film I'm a die-hard Rolling Stones "Dead Flowers" guy. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, you're not gonna beat that. It's on Sticky Fingers. Or
1: us doing a cover of it. We oh did. yeah. There's a if you drill into YouTube, you can find that on there somewhere. Um, yeah, that's a great song. And but the Rolling Stones are just so expensive. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure yeah. they probably didn't have the budget to buy the Rolling Stones version. But that's another band that has, like, really great rock songs with a whole big scoop of country stuck in there.
0: Big time. Big, And I, I didn't realize how much until I got even older and went more into, like, the Rolling Stones discography. The other thing that used to happen when you were trying to find a song is you would write down the lyrics, like you said. And then people would always, like, put you on the spot. They're like can you sing it? How does it go? Like, you know, I don't mind singing. I don't have a problem with it, but there was just something about the way people would ask you that. Then they'd like really put you on the spot. And if you weren't like perfect pitched, like, I don't know what you're singing. And it's just like, go fuck yourself.
1: (laughs) You know what I mean? Well, I'm a really good singer. So anytime I had that happen, people had to shut their trap.
0: I'm happy for you with that. I and I'm glad. I didn't have that. Like my voice is good, but I sometimes like if I didn't know the words and I couldn't remember everything, yeah. it was kind of like a radio station trying to come in. So well, I can understand that. But I felt like they were just waiting to say. Like, I'm in my yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you're saying. I don't they know. They
1: probably were. They're they just were. being hard ons. Yeah, they were and being people don't do that hard-ons. as much to girls. So I had that going for me as well. But also I'm definitely the kind of person that just lives for being put on the spot like that. Because when somebody does that to me and I can just shove it right where the sun don't shine, it's kind of my favorite thing in the world. I know, I'm a terrible person, but the shot in for a weight is enough to like keep me nourished for many, many moons.
0: I love you, and I love that about <laughs> you. I think that's fantastic. So let's talk about some edited lines for television. <laughs>
1: that's, that's a good one, because I didn't know about this. so this was something that you told me, because... By the time I saw this, I really didn't have TV. You know, again, this is when I was in grad school and it was the brokest I've ever been. So I didn't, like, have access to watching this on television. And you told me, like, years later, that watching this edited was really funny. It's wonderful. And, you know, there's other movies that are hilarious to watch edited, like Scarface is another good example. But this is maybe the best movie to watch edited we actually went out of our way to do that so that i could hear the funny lines
0: yeah i mean i think that i mean there there are a few that, that we'll give you um one is when walter is smashing up the corvette and he's saying see what happens larry um he actually had <laughs> To, to, you know, to fill in some things. And it said, one of the interviews we watched today actually said that no one had prepared him with any lines for this. So I'm thinking, you know, either he came up with it on the spot or maybe, you know, somebody gave it to him uh, there.
1: Well, he also... (laughs) Yeah, and then he also didn't realize that the whole neighborhood had been bought out. Oh, yeah. So John Goodman was really stressed out because he was going to be he was in like this quiet little neighborhood smashing up a car, you know, with a crowbar and mm-hmm. screaming, this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass. <laughs> so he Jesus felt Christ. terrible about it, but then he realized like oh wait, uh, there's nobody around here. We're good. <laughs> <What>? <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean that would be that would be nuts. So here are some of the uh, alternates that are said on television. You see what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps? Excellent. <laughs> this next one is really nice also. See what happens when you feed a soldier scrambled eggs? <laughs> I've
1: what never is, heard that one. That's what? great. I thought that was
0: just like that was really good. Those are I the love ones. It. I've got. I wanna have more. Maybe I can I can find like an edit oh, cut. That would be great. I yeah. would, they,
1: I love stuff like that. And the delivery of it is like at the same intensity. Yes. Yes. It and is. that's what makes it really good. See what happens, Larry? <laughs> See what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps <laughs> I mean I, I just it it makes me think of like when I've seen some outtake kind of things from like Anchorman with Will Ferrell, where Adam McKay is just throwing him all these lines to say, yeah, and they're all so stupid and amazing, and he just is coming out with it on the fly. I totally love that. Well, Which I'd... I would say um, that one of the main things that I was surprised about in this movie is that there isn't more improvisation. You know, I, 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 it's so natural, like the dialogue in this, that I would have expected that a lot of it was kind of come up with on the fly. But John Goodman is very specific about saying, no, this was not. He's like, I'm not that good at improv to do this. So, you know, I have to say they may not be great at improv or they may not think they're great at improv, but they are great at making this any of this dialogue sound so natural. Like, it's written well, but then the actors perform it well, too.
0: This brings us back to a Howard Hawks situation once again. The timing. The timing in this film is so important. And that's what makes all of these things funny. The overlapping lines. The quick back and forth. That's why we're laughing. So it's like, not only do you have this dialogue that's very funny, it's the delivery of that dialogue. Yeah. So it's just... They're like a comedy team. I mean, those three guys, Busemi, Bridges, Goodman, that is a team. Yeah. And when Totoro came in, you know, he fit right in, you know? Yeah. You know?
1: <laughs> well, it was perfect because he's so antagonistic toward them yeah you know and they aren't really saying anything it's like the one time in the movie where walter like doesn't talk back to someone Mm -hmm. like he never stops talking back to everybody and thinking that he's like hot shit but then with jesus he's just like zipped up like he talks shit about him behind his back but not in front of him
0: no he doesn't dare do that (laughs) you know and i mean jesus says to him he says you know you pull any of that crazy shit out in the lanes? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> pull the fucking piece. He goes, I'll, what does he say? I'll, I'll...
1: shove it up your ass and pull the trigger till it goes click. Yeah, yeah, he
0: doesn't, yeah, he's not having it. Yeah,
1: he's like a ex-con. Like, he's no bullshit, you know. And, of course, when the minute he turns around and walks off, you know, Walter's like, he's a petter ass Eight-year-old's just it's so organic it just feels like it's happening in the moment so i think that's why it surprises me that it wasn't
0: yeah i, I mean it, it's just so quick and they have it time and time again i mean you know i also like it when the thugs are in the dude's apartment at the beginning and the, the guy <laughs> takes the bowling ball out of the bag and he goes what the fuck is this <laughs> And he goes, obviously, you're not a golfer. (laughs) (laughs) Golfer.
1: I mean, I just, there's so much good stuff. What's your, do you have a favorite quote that you can pull out of this?
0: Racially, he's pretty cool. Oh, God. God.
1: So, that whole scene is one of my favorites. So, this is when the dude first goes over to the big Lebowski's mansion. And Brandt is, like, showing him around and this, like, wall of honors and accolades yeah yeah and he's like these are mr lebowski's kids and it's this picture of big lebowski with all these little lebowski urban achievers Mm -hmm. and (laughs) but the dude like doesn't either doesn't get it or he's being willfully obtuse and he's like oh different mothers huh (laughs) because it's like yeah, they're not his actual children, you know. Then Brandt is like, Oh,
0: his laugh, he should have patented that laugh,
1: you yeah. know.
0: That Philip Seymour Hoffman laugh is so good,
1: it's perfect, like, it couldn't be better at all. Yeah, like, every character except for Donnie, who <laughs> pretty much doesn't say anything that's not a question or repeating somebody else." Has like crazy lines. Like we've had two different T-shirts of Walter over yes. the years. We had one that said "I don't roll on shabbos." Oh, that was awesome. And we had one that said "You're entering world of pain." <laughs> yeah, which is <laughs> really good as well. This movie, again, if you had gone back and asked me when I first saw it if I would consider this one of my favorite movies of all time, I don't think I would have. I would have probably thought you were insane because I just didn't get it at first and over repeated viewings and just being more like open to what the movie could be I have just come to really enjoy it because it's really something that the Coen brothers do really well because you know it kind of makes me think of oh brother where art thou they have, you know, in that movie, which I'm sure we probably will do it sometime after we do another 50 episodes <laughs> and have a buffer um, between Cohen Brothers movies, um, they took the Odyssey, you know, which is an extremely well-known story, and they, like, adapted it to a very different time and place and set of people, and I feel like that's what they're doing here exactly. They took, you know, these Raymond Chandler... You know, Seamus stories. Yeah, yeah. And adapted it to you know '90s Southern California with these people who were totally different than the the people of the Chandler stories. So I think that they're really smart with that, and they come up with a lot of really funny ways to play with it. And then they put together an awesome cast, an awesome soundtrack. Uh, we have one glaringly obvious omission that we haven't discussed.
0: Roger Deacons, exactly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I back right I'm like, we gotta page. talk, Roger Deakins. <laughs> what a DP, right? What yeah. a DP. Yeah,
1: he's, he's worked with them multiple times, but his style is so excellent. I mean, I think pretty much anybody who thinks about cinematography would say that he's one of the best cinematographers of all time yes um and he did a lot of really cool stuff in this movie um between how you know they made it work with shooting the busby berkeley number between the different ways that they use light in like the real scenes versus like these fantasy type scenes and also just figuring out these ways to film cool shots of bowling (laughs) Like one of the things that we saw was that they kind of rigged up this little kind of like motorized skateboard that they would put the camera on and have it follow um, that somebody would, the operator would be using a joystick and it would follow the ball down the lane. So you're not really thinking about that. I feel when you're watching the movie and you see this, you know, you it's kind of like you're just right behind the bowling ball. But, you know, when you start thinking about it, it's like, how do they get that shot? You know, you can't run down uh, a bowling lane with a steady cam rig. You would definitely fall on your ass. <laughs> it's so slippery. It yes, yeah. yeah. So it's like, how do they do it? Well, they got this, like, a little motorized skateboard and zoomed it down, and they said it could go up to, like, 25 miles an hour. That's incredible. They did, like, a side tracking shot of, of a bowling ball going down and hitting the pins also, which is super cool. And then they did that uh, from inside the bowling ball type of shot in which they kind of had a camera <laughs> mounted on like a spit, basically, where they're like turning the spit going down the lane. Um, so it it's really smart. I love that creative idea of being able to take, you know, something that we take for granted, you know that if you're doing a movie about bowling, you're going to be watching the ball go down the lane. It's like, well, how do you make that work? You know, how do you draw the eye to that in a creative and interesting way that, you know, works in
0: real life? Well, Roger Deakins doesn't have any ego. When he talked about that amazing shot, of the camera being on a spit on a dolly going down the lane, he was just like, oh, yeah, it's good to use, you know, practical solutions. You know, it's just like, what? Like anybody could have thought of it, you know? It's like, could you put peanut butter on the bread? You know, that's the way he approaches it. So it doesn't have any ego. It just has this massive amount of talent. The Cohen brothers actually started working with Roger Deakins when they were still working non-union and they weren't able to get a DP from the United States because they would be unionized. So they got someone from outside of the country and they got Roger Deacons and it was an incredible match. And they've done a bunch of movies together.
1: Yeah, and his style is really um he can do a lot of different types of movies, but still you have the same stamp on it. There's something about a Deacon's movie that I can tell from other types of cinematographer movies. And, you know, we've talked about Dean Cundey and Gary Kibbe in the past when we were talking about the John Carpenter movies. And Wally Pfister. Yeah, we talked about Wally Pfister with Christopher Nolan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those guys have a very specific style, too. And especially in my recollection with Cundy and Kibby, both of those guys kind of have this same kind of workmanlike attitude about things, where it's like they are very creative and innovative, but they feel like they're just doing their job. Yes. And that's kind of what Deacons comes across as, too. He's just like, oh, yeah, well, you just kind of have to figure out how to do it, and then you do it, you know? And it's it's not... It's just like they're just doing their everyday thing it's no big deal and i think that's really amazing
0: well i feel like his ease of attitude actually comes through in his filming i would say it's very non-specific it's hard for me to put my finger directly on what makes me think about roger deakins well they're beautiful frames let's begin there but also i feel that his work always has a fluidity to it that is uniquely his own
1: yeah and i think his use of color is really good um, too in pretty much every movie, whether it's a a, a saturation uh, like they did in *O Brother*, where like everything is really sepia tinted, mm-hmm. um, or in this movie, I think about the neon, yeah, um, which I think looks great on camera, mm-hmm. um, but in this it looks even better than I've seen it in other movies. It it's so saturated and colorful and. It evokes the sense of location really well um, because they're in like this kind of old-fashioned feel bowling alley, um, and every color gets to shine at the same time, which I think is really hard to do to balance over a shot like a the composition of a shot that takes you know into account this whole room. Mm-hmm. And nothing sticks out. Everything looks like what it would look like if you were there. Like it's very real. I love that. Yeah.
0: And it's also, this film engages in visual storytelling, just like Hitchcock. And I'm sure that was a collaboration between the Coen brothers and Roger Deacons. These people know exactly what they want. The Coens, you know, are like Hitchcock. They know. You know, they had a movie, the Coens, their first big film was Blood Simple. And Blood Simple, for the duration of the film, pretty much relies on one song. It it relies on the same old song. Fantastic (laughs) tune. But, I mean, every single time that we hear the same song, it actually has a different meaning and again this actually lines up with the lyrics of same old song <laughs> yeah, so it's a different meaning yeah it's the <laughs> same old song but really a different funny. meaning since you've been gone yeah and it's just like i we could go through the whole song anyway
1: no but they do definitely have the visual storytelling and they also write you know their own screenplay and something i read uh, that i thought was interesting is that jeff bridges was talking to john goodman when they you know got in the script and they were getting prepared to do the movie and he was saying okay so when you know do you think we'll get rewrites because he's used to the normal thing of getting rewrites up until you know the second that you're filming the scene <laughs> and goodman was just like yeah they don't do rewrites <laughs> like they are pretty decisive you know once they make a decision like okay this is the script that's script They're not going to change it. They're not going to change course. And I think that's something that's pretty unique. Um, And it goes back to what you were saying. They do know exactly what they want. They know exactly how they want it to sound. They know exactly how they want it to look. You know, they pick people who can achieve that and also uh, embellish that without changing it. You know, they're looking for actors who can... Bring a lot to the role, and also give them exactly what they're looking for. You know, I mean, Jeff Bridges was like the perfect guy for this because he he said at some points like, "Did you like know me from the seventies or something?" Because like he said, <laughs> they got him so on, and a lot of his clothes in the movie are his real clothes. I love that Like I think one of the shirts he wears, he wore in the Fisher King, also and those jelly shoes were his actual shoes. So good. Which he thinks are comfortable according to him saying that to Conan O'Brien. I had more jelly shoes in the 80s and they are the sweatiest fucking shoes on planet Earth. They're made out of plastic. They do not breathe. I cannot believe that he would think those are comfortable but okay. Whatever Jeff Bridges. Whatever. But they look crazy too. I mean, and he's got, like, that sweater. He's wearing a bathrobe in the grocery store. So good. And it's also very California, though, too. Yeah. Like, if people are in their own neighborhood, it can be very cash here.
0: I've definitely done a few errands in my PJs. Yeah. Happened. Oh,
1: yeah. We, especially after COVID, Well it's oh, like, yeah. well, after I don't need COVID. to change out of my pajama pants to go pick up, you know, pizza. <laughs> it's fine
0: after covid i mean we're lucky people just don't shit in the street you know what i mean some we just... people
1: do <laughs> <laughs> That's Let's true. be honest
0: well the other thing i want to bring up and this is just bringing it back around to like this visual storytelling is the beginning of the movie we see the pins being set up and then we also see the clear scorecard you know with the bowling alley and it's to show you that everything is being set up you know the pins are being set Right. We have an empty scorecard. We haven't started playing yet. We're getting ready to go. And again, the song, the Bob Dylan song, The Man in Me, also has like a carnival kind of feel to it as well. Like everything is just gearing up. And then we have the incredible shots of everyone bowling across all the lanes. We see all the quirky people at the bowling alley. You know, I I bowled for years. You know, I bowled with my dad. I bowled with my grandfather. And there are a lot of very distinct personalities at a bowling alley. Like, it really is come as you are. (laughs) So it's like, you know, going back to your question of how do these very different people meet up and become friends, it's because they like bowling.
1: Yeah, that, that is the common thread.
0: Right. It's just like with sports, right? I mean, I'm not really a sports guy myself. But if people like the same sports team, they're good to go, no matter what it yeah, seems.
1: Yeah, there's always something to talk about if that if you have that in common. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that another thing that I really like with this visual storytelling is the tumbleweed stuff <laughs> oh, at yeah. the beginning. I mean, we follow this tumbleweed from kind of a desert area, mm-hmm. and then it ends up like on the beach, and that's kind of like almost like a fish out of water type of thing because this tumbleweed shouldn't be on the beach like these two things don't go together right and then we immediately go into the story of the dude in like you know the unlikely role of a detective and it's like these two things don't fit together either so i think that that's kind of a pretty funny metaphor visual metaphor
0: Well, and I think this also ties in as well. So this has, you know, this mystery piece to it. You know, it's very big. And they're thinking about Raymond Chandler. Well, I also feel it has this Western vibe to it as well. Like with some of the clothing, like the dude sweater that we see that has like a, you know, Southwest kind of vibe to it. And so you start thinking, oh, so it's kind of like there's going to be a shootout. And all these detective stories and all these cowboy movies, there's always a shootout. And I was just thinking, okay, so there isn't actually like a shootout shootout, but there is bowling. Bowling is the battlefield. (laughs) So, like, that's how you settle it. And instead of a fist fight, instead of a shootout... You bowl for dominance. And really, if you look at the situation with Jesus talking smack to the dude and the guys, this is very much like fighting words.
1: Yeah. Before
0: the brawl, before the shootout.
1: Before the high noon meetup. Yeah. Yeah, that's really funny. And, of course, like Sam Elliott's character is dressed like head-to-toe cowboy, like straight out of a Western. Even with, like, the giant, like, handlebar mustache. Well, and that's
0: the thing. They've got him doing almost like a a VO, a narration that we would find in these detective stories. But he is a cowboy. And I think that the reason it's difficult for him to make sense as a character is he is trying to mix these two things, which really don't go together at at all. all. And I mean, we also have Walter literally pulls out a gun at the bowling alley, you know, you know, so I mean, we have that there. So the battlefield in this is the bowling alley. It's
1: brilliant. I love it.
0: It's pretty wild. And I mean, as always, there's so much with these films. I mean, this movie is one that I do love and I love even more. Every time we go back this time around, I was able to pick up on the Sam Elliott situation and that, you know, his monologues mean nothing. I always tried to find purpose in sometimes you eat the bar.
1: Sometimes the bar eats you.
0: Right. You know, and it's like, you're like, okay. And I've said that to people. I don't know what the hell that means. Mostly is a joke.
1: Well, I think it's pretty clear. I don't know if it's appropriate in the movie at that <laughs> particular situation. But it's just saying that's like, like, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. That's, it, that's really it.
0: Yeah, they just, they classed it up for this. So, yeah, it's, but it, I I I didn't
1: understand that bar meant bear. So, I was, like, constantly, like, not understanding what he was saying. Jesus
0: Christ. I never understood it until right now. (laughs) And and this is a guy that's coming from, you know, my dad, okay? When he, like, had his, you know, Western PA accent untethered. Instead of shower, instead of, I'm going to go take a shower, it's, I'm going to go take a shower. You know what I mean? So I had, you know, that voice around me growing up, and I didn't I didn't catch no, it. No, that's
1: what he's saying. He's saying sometimes you eat the bear, and sometimes the bear eats you.
0: And then we're in California also. And then wasn't Davy Crockett, right, killed him a bar when he was only three? Davy, Davy yeah. Crockett. Yeah, okay. I, I never figured that out. It took
1: me a really long time to figure out that. So <laughs> once I did, then I kind of understood what he was saying a little bit more, but... Other, I mean, If you thought he was saying bar B-A-R, then I did. you really didn't have any clue, I know just what the like hell me. was going
0: on. Well, and it's, I also, I mean, you know, Goodman kind of looks like a bear. <laughs> is, is, that, is that like sometimes he wins the argument with Walter, sometimes he loses?
1: Interesting.
0: You know, it could be a bigger thing. But again, we're looking for meaning.
1: And the Cohen brothers kind of have said that some of the things are just in there because they are. Exactly. You know, they just wanted it and liked it, you know. Um, But, you know, even when that's the case, like I've written stories, and I'm sure you have too, where you have things in there that you just put in there because it made sense to you in the the moment, and then somebody else finds like a much deeper meaning that you weren't intending, but you're like, yeah, that sounds good, (laughs) you know, like, let's go with that.
0: Yeah, well, and I mean, again, yeah, we should not look for anything, you're absolutely right, With with the Sam Elliott lines coen brothers said it themselves but they are there hold on the other thing that i want to say is that the the last line that we get from sam Elliott, you know our our big narrator is he's asking the barkeep if they have any more (laughs) of that good sarsaparilla yeah which
1: is just (laughs) what back to being like where are you like where do you think you are yeah like, you know, you're at a bar in a bowling alley, not at like a saloon in
0: the Old West. <laughs> well, you're not at the drugstore. It reminds me of that. Like, you know, you they, they say back in the day, you go to the drugstore, you get like a cherry soda or you get a malt. And it was like this great experience, you know. And I mean, that's the other thing, too, with Sam Elliott's character. He doesn't want him to swear. He's like, yeah. you know, it's like he seems like he should be a spokesperson on a, a children's show when we were younger. You know, like Sport Billy and Sport Lily, you know, like that. <laughs> or like... if
1: you were just selling cigarettes to kids. like, uh...
0: <laughs> Don't swear, kids, but be sure to smoke a pack a day. Yeah, I gotcha. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, yeah. All right. Yeah, we covered a lot on this. I mean, I think this has been a really good episode. I mean, we didn't talk about who the fuck are the Knutson's, <laughs> but I'm okay with that. Yeah, You know, okay. I feel okay. They, they have a farm. It looks good you know
1: i mean i feel like we know who they are enough
0: oh it, and here i am i just threw this off but i thought of something you know what that's like that's like jody foster and taxi driver you remember she goes back to her parents oh, at the yeah. end right and that is like this they that's want bunny to go back
1: to, to the, minnesota or north dakota or wherever
0: back to the farm yeah <laughs> yeah
1: yeah um yeah, I mean, it's this is a great movie. I'm really glad that we picked this one. It's not really your standard mystery. And the hard thing, you know, doing a month where we're talking mysteries when we love like mystery and detective movies so much, yeah, is settling down on like which is the right one to talk. And even though this isn't your traditional choice, I think that it is one of my favorites and yours, and definitely one of the ones that we see as a comfort movie and we've watched many many times you know it's been a long time since we watched it until this week yep. and so seeing it again was really interesting this time because i feel like a lot of things i noticed this time things i've never noticed before because i had that break um so you know but i definitely think we'll keep quoting this practically every day and watching this movie because it's just a really well done movie the Coen brothers have a specific kind of offbeat humor that I think never gets old to either one of us. Mm -hmm. And so for those reasons, this made a perfect choice for the mystery month. Um, Next week we are coming back with something that's a bit more of a traditional mystery yeah, where we dig into the question of who was the one-armed man (laughs) (laughs) with, Another Harrison Ford flick, The Fugitive, also from the 90s. And this one was early 90s. That was a really big movie. Uh, When I was in school, I remember everybody loved this movie.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones won an Oscar.
1: Everybody Uh, did that impression of him in the movie. So, you know, we'll probably try our hand at that next week badly. (laughs) That'll be Something to look forward to. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the
0: Fugitive was nominated for Best Picture. I found this out later. And wow! Yeah, there's so much. There's it's very
1: popular. And I'm excited to talk about too. it. Me too. Me too. Because it is a really good movie.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and it's gonna feel different watching it again now because it's another one we haven't watched for quite a while.
0: No. So. And the other great thing about Harrison Ford is he's a good man and thorough.
1: <laughs> Dude, I think you mean thorough. Ah, uh, you're right. I a do. A good man and thorough.
0: It's, I, I always felt weird saying thorough, so I said thorough. And <laughs> That's it, okay. Yeah, I know mean, but the thorough is, yeah, that sells it.
1: Yeah, okay. I mean, we could just do mod voices. Maybe we should just do the episode again, but Whoa. with just the mod voice.
0: Mod voices would have been great. <laughs> I don't think I would. What if do we that. do the episode and I'm Liam?
1: Okay, so you don't talk at all. It's just me. Talking like mod the whole time. All right. Well, stay comfy, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that was
0: excellent excellent thank you yeah uh
1: in Georgia's voice <laughs> thanks for tuning in check us out next week when we do the fugitive and until then as always stay comfy stay
0: comfy everybody